You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, if you guys will go ahead and take your seats. All right, good evening. Thanks, Mom. Uh, if you guys will go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew 18. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 20 this evening as we continue our series called Twisted Scriptures. Uh, and in this series, we are taking verses that are often quoted out of context and seeking to put them back where they belong so we can understand what they actually mean. This is very fun for me. I love this. All right, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time or grew up in church at all, really, you've, you've probably heard this verse quoted. And probably quoted out of context, Matthew 18, verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And I can see some of you smirking already because you've studied this passage, right? We've probably heard that quoted out of context. Often, people will quote that verse to affirm that Christ is present even in a small church's worship service or a small Bible study or a small group or a prayer meeting. Right? And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what we call right doctrine, wrong verse. Okay? Right doctrine, wrong verse. It's my favorite game in the world to play. I play it all the time when I'm scrolling through Facebook because people like to quote, post things about the Bible and quote things out of context. And you know, they're not wrong in what they're saying here, but that's not what that verse is talking about. You guys have played that game before? Right doctrine, wrong verse. Okay, it's absolutely true that Christ is always present among his people, no matter how small the gathering. That's true for certain. After all, Christ is divine. He is God. And as per his divine nature, Christ is omnipresent. Okay, so he's everywhere. Right, so they're not wrong. And furthermore, Jesus says, lo, I'm, I'm with thee always, even to the end of the age. The King James just comes out sometimes. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Um, not only that, but Christ is present with his people at all times through his Holy Spirit, whom he sent to dwell in us, right? The Spirit of Christ. Uh, but that's not the doctrine that this verse is teaching us. Um, people also, especially in Scioto County, this is the one that I come in contact with the most about this verse. People like to take, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. People like to take that verse to justify the fact that they don't like to go to church. <laughs> Any, raise your hand. Anyone else ever dealt with that? Someone quotes that, right? Like, I, my sister was there with me at Mule Town Mini Mart where I work. Uh, and just recently, last week, I had a conversation with a man who professed to be a Christian but said he doesn't go to church, right? And when I told him that he was wrong and in sin, he legit looked at me and said, hey, where two or three are gathered, man, right? You, you've had this happen to you. Where two or three are gathered, right? We're both Christians. We're both talking about God. This is the same as church. Because where two or three are gathered, there Christ is among them. Right? Um, no. No, it's not the same as church. Okay, just we don't have the time to get into that. The importance of worship services on the Lord's Day is another sermon for another time, and we're going to do it someday because we're going to go through the Ten Commandments. All right? Uh, but Christ certainly wasn't teaching us that we don't have to go to church in this verse because he would be contradicting the author of Hebrews. Um, but no, both of these views on this verse are wrong. They're wrong, right? And look, I have a grandpa that doesn't understand this verse either, and I love him. This doesn't mean we're being snobby or mean towards people, but both understandings of, that, of this verse that I just talked about are wrong, all right? This verse is actually directly related to church discipline, which makes it hilarious whenever people quote it out of context. <laughs> it's related to church discipline. 
Now, here's your uh, convenience store theologian definition of church discipline. Here it is. Church discipline is a process instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ to bring about, one, repentance and restoration in a sinning Christian. Two, to promote holiness among the people of God. Three, to keep the church pure. And four, to be a witness to the world that Christ is holy and will judge unrepentant sinners. All right, so church discipline is a process, most importantly, to bring about repentance and restoration in a sinning Christian. All right, it's an ordinance from Christ. Now, church discipline is an integral part of any local congregation. Again, this is an institution of the Lord Jesus. It's not an option. But in spite of this, church discipline has become incredibly unpopular and is not practiced anymore by most American churches. And that is sin. It's sin to not practice church discipline, to not excommunicate, to not confront someone in their sin is sin. Christ tells us to do it. And that's also, it's why most churches look more like the world than what the Bible says the church is supposed to look like. Because churches don't practice church discipline. You guys know what I'm talking about. You look at a congregation and, and you see rampant, unchecked sin. And you see unrepentant sinners in the congregation. And no one's challenged on their disobedience and goats think that they're sheep. Right? No one's being called to repentance. Sin is not being addressed in the individual's lives within the congregation. And unbelievers are allowed to think that they're saved. If the church is to be holy and pure, there must be a method and means by which to promote holiness. Right? To promote holiness for the sake of Christ's own reputation. And that method and means is church discipline. Okay, so hear me out. God takes holiness and purity amongst his people very seriously. So we should do the same. All right, so our topic this evening is church discipline. I figured if I didn't annoy you talking about government last week, I'll go ahead and step on your toes this week by talking about excommunication and that whole process, right? Good times, because I like to pick easy things. This is why I don't do topical sermons. I always pick hard stuff. Anyway, by the end of this, though, you're going to see what Jesus was really talking about in that verse 20 that people often quote out of context. But here's your big idea. Here's your big idea for this whole sermon. By Christ's authority, the church has been given a process by which sinning believers are brought to repentance. And upon repentance, their forgiveness and restoration is immediate. It's beautiful. But here's some context before we get into this. I know I'm, I have a very large front porch on this building that we're going into. This is a long intro for me. Uh, some, some context before we read this passage. Um, in the verses directly coming before Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, Jesus has just told the parable of the lost sheep. And you guys know this parable. The one where the shepherd leaves the 99 to go find the one who's wandered off. right? And then he rejoices, the shepherd rejoices when he restores that one sheep to the flock. Okay, so that's the context. Right after Jesus tells that, that very famous parable of leaving the 99 sheep to go pursue the one, he then talks about church discipline. Right, so restoration and recovery is the theme and tone of this whole passage we're about to read. To restore the one who has wandered into sin and is, in a manner of speaking, lost in their sin. All right, so Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. 
But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I, I pray that you would bless us this evening as we sit under the ministry of your word. Lord, these people that are gathered here, they have not come to hear me speak, but they've come to hear you speak through your word by your spirit. So I pray that you would do that. Give us soft hearts to receive some hard words from Christ. Challenge us, Lord, that we might take holiness seriously, that we might really love one another, and that we might see the great grace of Christ toward us through something even as controversial as church discipline. Please bless us now. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so verse 15 starts. We're just going to walk through this verse by verse like always, right? Verse 15 starts and says, if your brother sins against you, right? So we're going to stop there. Brother, right? This is a professing Christian, your brother, someone who professes to be a Christian, uh, someone who claims that they have repented of their sin and claims to have trusted Christ for their salvation, someone who's part of the covenant community, right? The people of God, all right? So th the fact that Jesus mentions a brother, a professing Christian, tells us that church discipline, obviously, is a church issue, right? It's a church issue. Uh, it's only for those who are inside the church. It's not for the world. We can't practice church discipline on someone who's not a Christian, right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, Paul tells us, do we not judge people in the church? What right do I have to judge someone outside of the church, Right? So discipline is for those who are part of the covenant community. So again, this is a church issue. Professing believers only are involved here. But he says, if your brother, so a fellow Christian, sins against you. Right? So in the immediate context here, we're going we're to do some groundwork before we can really get into this. In the immediate context here, Jesus is dealing with interpersonal sin. Okay, where someone sins against someone else. That's the immediate context here. No one can deny that. But as we look throughout the rest of the New Testament and where Paul speaks about church discipline in Galatians 6 and in 1 Corinthians 5 and in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we, we get to see that church discipline is much wider than just interpersonal sin where someone does something sinful to another Christian. It's much wider than that. So let's just consider two passages real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. Paul says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. He's like, you've not done anything about this. You are arrogant. Ought not you rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. All right, so in this context, Paul says, hey, church discipline needs to happen to this guy in your, in your church because he's sleeping with his stepmother, and that's a no-go, right? Dude was gross, apparently. Uh, but again, no one's been in the congregation directly sinned against, right? So he says, but he, but he still says, remove that man. A public sin, a publicly known sin has occurred. Discipline this man. 
All right, so we see discipline can come for a public sin, not just interpersonal sin. And then we see a very general call in Galatians 6.1. Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Right? So that's very broad. Here we're called to confront, and confrontation is the first step in church discipline. We're called to confront any sin that we're aware of in a brother. A very, all right, so a very general call. So the church discipline process can be started for any sin that we are aware of in any brother or sister. Right? In all three of these instances, the sin is something that you can see or hear. It's something that you have been made aware of somehow. All right? It's not a heart issue uh, or an issue of motives. Okay? It's something you can see or hear or somehow be made aware of. But let me say this real quick. He says, if your brother sins against you, church discipline is for sin. Okay? This is funny. Some people, people forget this. So church discipline can be initiated for any sin that we're aware of in another Christian. But it's for sin. Right? Not annoyances. <laughs> And not personal preferences, because if we could initiate church discipline for annoyance and personal preference, I know some people in here I'd kick out because you guys get on my nerves, right? That's a joke, ladies and gentlemen. That was purely a joke. You guys can actually vote me out of the pastorate. Please don't do that, um, right? <laughs> but you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Annoyance and personal preferences, where someone will say, hey, I don't like how that person spoke to me. They didn't say anything wicked. They didn't really sin, but I just don't like the tone that they took with me, uh, or, you know, I think that this person should keep their house differently, or I don't like the fact that this person drinks alcohol in moderation, or I don't think that this person should, should get a tattoo, right? Those kinds of things where it's preference or just annoyance issues. That's not a discipline-worthy thing, right? Discipline is, is for whenever you become aware that another professing Christian has violated the law of God, not got on your nerves, but has violated the law of God. Then and only then is there grounds to start the discipline process. And even at that, we have to remember something that Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4. And that is love covers a multitude of sins. Okay, so don't go nitpicking each other. Right? If you saw someone act out of character, love covers that. Right? Discipline is for more grievous, heinous sin, most generally. Right? But when you're made aware of another person's sin, what do you do? Jesus says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. He says, go to him and address the sin issue. Address it and do it privately. Aha, do it privately. Keep the circle of people who know small. Keep it small. In fact, keep it just between you two. Don't involve anyone else. Right? If you know someone's sin, don't immediately contact me and Steve. <laughs> right? don't, don't talk to anybody, actually, between you and that person privately. Keep the circle small, but i got a caveat for that, unless something criminal has happened. If someone's being abused or something criminal has happened, they have just exited the church realm and entered into the civil government realm, and you need to call the cops. Okay? Just want to make that clear. If something criminal is going on, call the cops. That's not a church issue anymore. That's a cop issue. Uh, but regardless, or not regardless, but again, if it's not a criminal thing, keep it between the two of you. Okay, that's what Jesus says. Keep the circle small. And we do that because we don't want to embarrass or shame our brother, right? The person who's fallen into sin. We don't want a gotcha moment, right? You know what I'm talking about? We're like, we're going to let everyone know because he is just trash, right? That's not what we're going for. We're not looking for a gotcha moment. We don't want scandal in the church. Rather, we want our brother who is in sin to repent. That's the goal. And people tend to respond well to rebuke when it's private. 
So let me say this. If you find out someone's in sin, you do not go and gossip. God says he hates a gossiping tongue. You don't go around and start telling people unnecessarily, hey, did you hear what Farhad did? Right? You never guess what Steve did last week. I got the juicy details, right? And I do. Um, it's another joke, guys. Um, right? But if you go around and gossip, then you're the one who's in sin now. A pretty grievous sin, I might add. Gossip is a big deal in the scriptures. And now you need to repent or the discipline process can come to you. Don't gossip. Right? We do our best in this situation to guard our fallen brother's reputation. Right? And the more that a sin is known and discussed, the more that rumors start, and then the person who is in sin might become resentful and not want to listen to your rebuke. So keep the circle small, just between two, the two of you. But nevertheless, you go to the person who is in sin, and you confront them. That's what Jesus says. says tell him his fault, and you go to him. Right? You don't wait for the person to come to you. You don't wait for the person to confess the sin to you. Once you know that there's sin, you go to them. Like again, in this context, like the shepherd went after the sheep who had wandered away. Right? Like a doctor goes to a sick person and doesn't expect the sick person to come to them. Right? You seek the person out. And you seek him out with compassion and a true desire to help. But you go to the person and you name their sin. And you call it out, and you don't beat around the bush, right? Be direct with the person. Brother, I saw you do this. Steve, I saw this in you. God has called you to holiness. You ought not be that way, right? Mark, you know that this is sin. You shouldn't have done this. You know it's not okay. Be direct. Name the sin. And take them to the Scriptures. Prove to the person who is in sin that they indeed are in sin. Show them in the Word of God where they violated the law of God, and then call them to repentance. Tell him his fault. But be gentle. Be gentle. The shepherd who goes after the lost sheep is gentle with the lost sheep. He's direct with the sheep, picks it up, slings it over his back for certain. But nevertheless, loves that sheep, wants it back. Be gentle, be humble, be meek, be gracious to this person in sin. Be kind to the brother and speak calmly and gently with them like Paul tells you to in Galatians 6.1. Right? Go gently to them. Don't act self-righteous when you confront someone. God help us. This is where a lot of first step of church discipline goes wrong. Someone wants to confront somebody. Hey man, you're messing up. That's not how we're supposed to go. That's not our attitude. You need to remember that you are the worst sinner that you know. You know your sin more than you know anyone else's. You know that you're trash and that you deserve to go to hell. Do you not? Say yes, so you're not a Christian. <laughs> you know that you're the worst sinner. Be gentle with this person. And call them to repentance and renewed faith in Christ. That's the whole reason that you're confronting them. is so that they would repent. But if he listens to you, Jesus says you've gained your brother. Right? And that's the goal of discipline, to gain your brother, to restore him, right? to get him back, to gain him back from sin. The goal of confrontation whenever someone sins is not to kick them when they're down or feel superior to them like a Pharisee. That is evil. That is sin. We go to the person in sin because we want to see them restored and brought to Christ. In fact, that is the only reason to ever confront someone in their sin. Because you want to see them repent. Because you want to see them walk faithfully with Christ. We do not confront someone in anger or rivalry or a sense of superiority or self-righteousness or any other worldly reason. 
We confront to see repentance, restoration, and the person flourish in their knowledge of God. So, real quick, if you know someone who's currently in sin, if you've got someone in, in mind that you need to go to, um, if that's not your heart, I want them to repent. I want what's good for them. Then shut up. If that's not your heart, keep your mouth shut because you're not ready to go and gain your brother because you lack love for them. If you confront someone without a heart of love and compassion and wanting what's best for them, you don't love them. You have no right to confront them yet. No right whatsoever. And you need to go pray for love and pray that God would change your heart and then go. But again, all steps of church discipline flow from our love for our fellow Christian. We know that sin destroys. We know that sin puts a barrier between us and God in our communion with Him. And we want the person to be spared from that. We want them to live lives that glorify God. We want them to have full fellowship with Christ as, as He intends them to. So we go to them. And if the sinner listens and repents, I love this part, then the process is over. The process is over and the goal is achieved. And praise God, the person is forgiven by God. Like John tells us in 1 John chapter 1, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's an instantaneous forgiveness from God. His forgiveness is very unlike our own. It's immediate and it's done and the person is forgiven. That's what happens in the discipline process. As soon as they repent, the process is over. They're forgiven by God. They've been restored. So we don't bring it up again. It's over and it's done with. Right? This is how God forgives us. We repent and we're forgiven. And that's what discipline, I think, is meant to remind us. Right? That, if, that there's forgiveness for any who will repent, no matter what the sin is. So if a brother falls a thousand times and is confronted a thousand times and repents a thousand times, then praise God, discipline has had its effect a thousand times and is a testimony to the grace of God. It's beautiful. It's had its effect. Church discipline reminds us that God is patient with us every day. He forgives us over and over. So therefore, we are patient and compassionate towards one another in the process, no matter how much failure that there is, so long as there is repentance. But sometimes personal confrontation doesn't work. But don't give up. Just because they don't listen to you the first time, don't give up. Remember, God does not give up on you in your sin. Right? So what do you do? You go and get some help, is what Jesus says. Go and get some reinforcements because you want to see this person restored. Verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Right? So he says, take one or two people along with you. Right? Again, and I'll say this, you, you, you want them to be wise Christians. You're going to want someone that's wise with godly biblical judgment. Someone who's been around the block a couple of times and has walked faithfully with Christ for some time. And also, preferably, you're going to want someone who knows the fallen brother. You're going to want someone who, who's actually in relationship with this person, if that's possible. But the witnesses are there primarily to establish some stuff. All right, this sounds very legal and not very spiritual, but this is very important. One, the witnesses are there to establish that sin has actually occurred. Right? To clarify the situation and make sure that this isn't a charge of sin that's actually just some petty disagreement, but that this is really a sin issue. All right, so they're to make sure that sin has actually occurred. Two, the witnesses are there to ensure that the charge of being unrepentant is true. 
that the charge of being unrepentant is real. And that the person accusing the other person of sin isn't just being ridiculous and cold towards them. That they're not lying. And then third, the witnesses are there. This is incredibly important as well. To also pray for and plead with the sinner. Right? They're there to plead with and pray for the sinner. To plead with him to repent. Why? Because group pleading is stronger. I mean, just, just be real. Like, if you come to me and tell me, hey, Dave, uh, what you're doing in your life, like thing X, right? You're sinning and you need to repent. I might not listen to you, right? But if you go and get Steve and Matt Witt, right, and the three of you together come to me and say, hey, you're sinning. Here's what the Word of God says. Please repent. I'm probably going to take the three people in agreement that I'm in sin way more seriously than I'm going to take the one person by themselves. It becomes more serious. right? The pleading becomes much stronger when there's a small group of people. But again, the goal of this small group confrontation is that the sinner might see that this is actually a big deal and that they need to repent. And the reason for this is love for the brother and desire to see him flourish. So the witnesses are there to make sure that no one's falsely accused and to plead with the person in sin. Right, just furthermore, it's a big deal to accuse someone of sinning. Like that, you ever think about that? Like sometimes I think we say well, so and so sinned. Like you see something on Facebook, well, that's sin. That's a real serious charge. Like you better be sure that you're right. You're saying that they've transgressed the law of the holy God of the universe. That's huge. And it's even more serious to say, and they won't repent. Like that's for real. You better be accurate. That is a heinous thing to do is accuse someone falsely of sinning and being unrepentant. But again, we have witnesses because we want everything to be fair and just because God is just and fair and true in his judgments. So we need witnesses. But even with this small group, the sinning person may still not listen. Right? They are unrepentant. They're impenitent. They won't listen. So Jesus says in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, Tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. Now this third step is one that our culture finds repulsive. Tell the church. Right? This, this seems mean to many people. Right? And unnecessary and maybe even impractical to tell the church of someone's sin. Right? To make the, the sin publicly known to the church community is looked down upon in their day. Right? I've talked to people about church discipline. They've came forward and said, yeah, they, they kicked someone out of this church. And it was actually like a, a good, like legitimate biblical reason and the person wouldn't repent. And they're like, yeah, man, I think that's ridiculous. And that church needs to mind its own business. And, and what that person does in their private life is no concern to the church. And people need to stop meddling in, in other people's lives. You ever heard people talk about that whenever you talk about church discipline? That is no one's business but the person who committed the sin. The church has no right to get involved. Uh, false. <laughs> Hear me. Being a Christian is not a solo act compared to what a lot of Western Christians think. This is not a solo act, right? Whenever Christ gave you the new birth and you came to faith in him, he called you to his body, the church. That's what he called you to. He didn't just call you to himself, but he says, now join yourself to my body. And by the way, that's why we push church membership so much. You need to join yourself to the body of Christ. Right? But it's Christ who's brought us together. So we are one unit. We are one family. It is our business what each other does. 
contrary to popular belief. What I do is your business, and what you do is mine. We're brothers and sisters, one family, one unit. All right, there is no lone wolf Christianity. That is an abiblical concept. All right, we're in this together. Your life is now our life. And we are united as brothers and sisters, and family cares for family. All right, so the church is told of the sin. But hear me, the church is not told in order to shame the person. That's not the, that's not the point of telling, like, that's what you think. Like, you remember the old movie, like the scarlet letter, to shame, shame. No, that's not what we're going after on this. The church isn't told, that, told for that reason. Rather, as Jesus commands this, he is giving the sinner a lot of grace. The whole covenant community will now be praying for and pleading with the person in sin. That's a huge amount of grace. The whole church is now going to be pleading with this person and pointing them to repentance and renewed faith in Christ. That's monumental. right? Uh, uh, to quote David Platt, he said, God loves you so much that he will send an army of believers to you. That's what it means to tell it to the church. God is sending all of his people in that community after you because they love you. The whole church can then cry out to the person in sin. and They can say, hey, we love you, brother, and there's a better way. Let us help you. We want you to come back to Christ, so come back. Receive forgiveness. We're not mad at you. We want what's best for you. So keep that in mind. The whole reason for making this sin known to the church is so that the church can help. And also so that the sinner can know that repentance is not an option. Repentance is serious business. But sometimes, sadly, the person who is in sin still won't repent. So then we move on to the final and most harsh part of this process. Verse 17, second half. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Right, this is what we call excommunication, which means to be put out of the communion. No communion. A Gentile and a tax collector, whenever Jesus says that, that's a Jewish way of saying someone who is deliberately rebellious and hard-hearted towards God. It says you count them as someone who's in open, defiant rebellion against God and does not belong to God. That's what it means to be put out of the church. That's what it means to be excommunicated. So we're to put them out of our fellowship, out of the church. All right, and that might sound extreme to 21st century ears, especially if this is the first time you've ever heard this talked about. But let me say it again. This isn't an option. Jesus commands this. Right, that's an imperative sentence. Right, Treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. He's saying, you do this. This is a commandment from Christ, no matter how extreme it might seem to us. It's commanded from our Lord. Now, excommunication makes a huge statement. It's intensely practical, right? In excommunication, what the church says to the person under church discipline is this. We can no longer vouch that you're a Christian. That's hard. We can no longer vouch that you're a Christian. Your refusal to repent has destroyed your profession of faith. And we have no evidence to believe that you're saved so we can no longer count you among the people of God. That's what excommunication says. And that is a huge, weighty thing to declare to somebody. We cannot count you amongst God's people anymore. You will not be counted amongst the assembly of the righteous. 
And there are consequences to this discipline. Right? First, this person is no longer admitted to the Lord's table. Communion, the Lord's Supper. They're no longer admitted to fellowship at the Lord's table. Since it's a symbol of our union with Christ. That's, what, that's, that's one of the things that, that communion symbolizes to us. It's more than just a symbol, but it does symbolize our union with Christ and our communion with one another, the people of God. Communion is for Christians. And someone under discipline, we can no longer say that they're a Christian, so they are barred from the Lord's table. And second, there's a lot of dispute on how exactly this needs to go down, but I can say from things that Paul says, like don't eat a meal with someone that's been excommunicated and have no dealings with them. That's the kind of language that Paul uses in his letters about someone under discipline. I can say this, for whatever debate that we might have on how to treat that person under discipline, I can say this, our relationships with them must change. If someone's been excommunicated, our relationships with them must change. Right? Like we don't spend time with them the way we used to. We don't catch up with them over dinner anymore. We don't just hang out and shoot the breeze with them anymore. When we speak with the excommunicated person, we speak of repentance. That's our contact with them. We speak of repentance. Why? Because our friendships are broken over this sin. Our fellowship is broken because of their rebellion against God and hostility to Him. And what does light have to do with darkness is what Paul says. This person is now the target of evangelism. So hear me out. We don't completely shun them, right? You think of the Amish whenever you think of excommunication. I'm not saying that. We don't completely shun them. Right? You can still talk to them. A Gentile and a tax collector needs converted. Right? They need to get saved. This person is now the target of evangelism. But our time spent with them is now geared towards calling them to repentance and calling them to come back to Christ. Excommunication is meant to be a symbol to the unrepentant person. Right? And that symbol is this. You are cut off from the people of God. You're no longer numbered among them. You are outside of their fellowship. And you cannot take communion, which Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, is our participation in Christ. Which is to say to the person, whenever we say, you can't take the Lord's Supper anymore, we're saying, you have no participation in Christ. You are without Christ in, in the world and without hope. And those two statements symbolize that so long as they remain unrepentant, that person is cut off from God and is alienated from Christ. And if they stay unrepentant, they will go to hell. Which is where those who are cut off from the people of God and those who are without Christ go. That's the statement that the church is making. Should you stay unrepentant, you will go to hell. And that's a harsh judgment. There is no denying that. That's a harsh judgment. But it says two things. To the sinner, it says, wake up. It's an impassioned plea to the person under discipline. This is serious. And your soul is at stake. You're without Christ. Repent and believe. Christ will not forgive impenitence. So come back and receive forgiveness. That's what it says to the person being disciplined. But it also speaks to the church. Church discipline says, church, our God has called us to holiness. And we must be a holy people. It says what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12. Strive for the holiness without which no one shall see the Lord. 
It says to the people of God, we must repent when we sin. God will not be mocked. And He is serious about holiness. So discipline speaks to both the disciplined person and the whole church at large. And people see this as unloving. Right? People see this as unloving. How dare you remove someone from your fellowship and tell them that they're going to go to hell? How dare you, as a church body, say that we no longer count you as one of the people of God? That's unloving. That's the opposite of Christianity. Hear me out. That's stupid if that's how you think on that. And I, I love you, and I'm, I mean that with as much grace as I can. This is the most unloving, or this is the most loving thing that we can do for someone who is in sin. To put them outside of fellowship and warn them of the wrath to come if they don't repent. That's the most loving thing we, we could do. It is unloving if we allow them to think that their sin is okay and everything is fine with them and God. That's unloving. Discipline can be the most loving thing that we do for them. And I'd have you remember this as well. The only sin worthy of excommunication is impenitence. Please hear me on that. Not repenting is the only thing worthy of excommunication. No one is excommunicated for lying or sexual immorality or stealing or false doctrine or any other sin. The person is disciplined for refusing to repent. That's why they're disciplined in the end. Repentance is key. Right? Christians sin for sure. No one can deny that. But Christians repent. That's what separates a Christian from someone who doesn't know Christ. Christians repent when they sin. Unbelievers don't. And because of that, we discipline and we discipline so that if the person truly belongs to Christ, they will repent too. That's why. Now this is a terrible thing. And it should never be done with a sense of retribution. But rather it's done with a broken heart that seeks to see the person in sin repent and be restored to full fellowship with Christ. It's meant to be the big wake-up call to the person in sin. But church discipline is hard. And it's uncomfortable. And if you've ever been a part at any step in that process, it's horribly uncomfortable. And it might even seem impractical sometimes, right? If you excommunicate the person, they're just going to go to the church down the street and they're not going to honor what your church has done. And you're probably right. It seems impractical. Keep in mind, Christ commanded it. And it's hard. So Christ knows that we're not going to want to do this. Right? I mean, who does? Who wants to do this? Any of the steps. Who really wants to do that? So that's why Christ encourages us. In verse 18, he says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Here Jesus is telling us that he has given his church the authority to carry out discipline. That's what he's saying. I know you don't want to do this, so let me encourage you with three things. One, I have given you the authority. It's my church. I'm saying to do this. So by his authority, what he's saying here is that the church declares what he has already declared in heaven. Right? And that's two things. One, the unrepentant person is not forgiven. They're bound. They're guilty. They're in their sin. They're not forgiven. He says you have the authority to declare that. An unrepentant person is not forgiven. But the church also has the authority to say the repentant person is forgiven. They're loosed. Right? So he's given us the authority so we should be encouraged to do what he has commanded here. And that is we declare the terms of forgiveness and fellowship that Christ himself has already declared. He's given us the authority. 
Verse 19, he says, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Right? So here Jesus says, here's the second bit of encouragement for you. He's guaranteed our support from God the Father. Right? This support that when we gather together as the church to confront sin, at any part in this process, that God is in agreement with us and he promises to give wisdom and to help us carry out this hard task of discipline. That whenever we ask God, help us as we do this, help, the, help us to see its desired effect of repentance, that God hears you and he'll give you support. And so we have the full support of God the Father. We have the resources of heaven at our disposal to do this job. Ask and you'll receive it from my Father. Ask for wisdom. Ask for help. He'll give it. And then lastly, we come to this often twisted verse. But now it becomes plain to us in its proper context. Verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Jesus promises his own presence with us in this process. That's what he's promising here. That when the church does discipline in line with Christ's word, right? And hear me out. If you, if, you, if you do discipline that's not in line with the word of God, Christ is against you. I know people that have been wrongfully excommunicated. But when you do discipline in line with the word of God, Jesus says that he, as head of his church, will be with us, approving us and agreeing with us. And that's a big comfort to do such a hard and sad job. But where Christ commands us to do something, here is his promise that he gives us grace to obey the command. And he promises to be especially present with us to help and guide us through every step of this process. Right? So with all of this encouragement, we have the authority of Christ, we have the support of the Father, and we have the presence of Christ with us. We ought to be more than willing to take on this responsibility to discipline in the church. He's encouraging us in those last three verses. Do this. But I started thinking about it. What is our motivation for practicing church discipline? Now, I know I've been up here for a while. Give me a little bit longer. The first is this. What's our motivation? One, it's always the easy one. Christ commanded it. Jesus said to do it. And he is Lord of the church. He's head of the church. And everything else, I might add. So we obey him. No matter what you personally think about discipline, he said to do it, so we do it. Our opinions don't matter. We've subjected ourselves to the Lord. But second, there's a deeper reason. We practice church discipline because we believe the gospel. We practice church discipline because we believe the gospel. All right, so hear me out on this. Christ died to make a holy people. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. We might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's what Christ did for us. So not only did Christ live perfectly in our place so that we could be given his righteousness, and not only did Christ take our sins upon himself and suffer the wrath of God in our place on the cross, but Christ was also raised from the dead so that we too would be raised from spiritual death to walk in newness of life. Christ's work made certain that we would walk in holiness and obedience and repentance when we sin. So if we don't practice church discipline, we are denying the work of Jesus. That's what we're doing. We're denying that he died to make a holy people. 
We're denying that He's actually set His people free from the power of sin. And that's a huge aspect of the Gospel to deny. Right? Christ lived, died, and was raised in order to save us and make us holy. And that's what we proclaim in church discipline. That's why we confront one another over sin and even excommunicate if necessary. Right? We do all this because we believe that the people of God have been made holy by Christ and that holiness must be expressed in righteous living and repentance when we sin. So we discipline because we believe the gospel. With some final thoughts on this. Church discipline, when it results in repentance, is a resounding testimony to the grace of God. And it might not seem that way to you at first. But when it results in repentance, it's a huge testimony to the grace of God. Because no matter what process that the step ends with, step one, two, three, or four, it doesn't matter, it always ends with the forgiveness of sins. It always ends with restoration of the person who's fallen. The sinner repents and is forgiven by God. And even if they've been excommunicated, they're brought back into the church. They're brought back. Church discipline screams, God takes us back. That's what it declares to us. Even when we've sinned in awful ways, even when we've been total fools, church discipline declares that God is merciful and gracious towards any who will repent and turn to Christ in faith. And that is good news. It's the gospel in action. Right? That's the gospel we preach, isn't it? That anyone is forgiven for all of their sins through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. That's the gospel we preach. And that's the gospel that we live out through church discipline. And here's your one point of application. This whole text is about pursuing those who have wandered from Christ. Gain your brother, right? The sheep who was lost and the shepherd goes and finds him. So go and do what Christ says. Go do what He says. Go get them back. Get them back. If you know a brother or sister who is currently in sin, go to them. Go to them and begin this process. Hear me out. Love them. Love them enough to confront them. Love them enough to do whatever is in your power to see them brought back to Christ. Love them enough to confront them with gentleness and help them see their need for repentance and renewed faith in Christ so that they might have restored fellowship with Him and that they might flourish in their knowledge of Christ. Love them enough to do that. Be the church. right? I know it's a cliche, but in this passage, it's for real. Be the church and carry out the work that the Lord has called you to do. Love one another. Love one another and love each other enough to do the hard things. Seek the good of one another as God in Christ has sought your good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you spoke through your son. God, I know that we've been challenged this evening with a hard teaching from the Lord. But I pray that you would let it sink into our hearts, that we would see not just as this legal step-by-step process, but that we would see church discipline actually declares the gospel because the goal is repentance and forgiveness of sin, and that's what you declare through the gospel. Any sin forgiven for those who repent and believe.
You keep no record of wrong against us once we repent and believe that you've, you've taken the record of wrongs that stood against us with its legal demands and you did away with them by nailing them to the cross. Lord, that's what discipline declares. So Lord, in light of how serious that you take holiness and repentance, I pray that you would work greater holiness in us, that we would leave no provision for the flesh, that we would really hate our sin with a holy, righteous sin or holy, righteous anger. Make us into the people that you've called us to be. Christ, you died to make us holy. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would work sanctification and righteousness in us. But God, we thank you above all things for Christ and him crucified on our behalf that we might be made holy and righteous. And we praise your name forever. In his name, amen.